0: Hello and welcome to the BLB podcast. This is the second episode in a series where we talk about the short story form, the writing process and how to get published. The BLB podcast is a new project from Brick Lane Bookshop. My name is Kate Ellis and this is my co-host Peter J. Coles.
1: Hello. uh, Yeah, today we're excited to introduce Aoife Inman, who won the 2021 Brick Lane Bookshop short story prize with her short story, Earthgrown Bodies. Aoife Inman is a writer from the Lizard Peninsula, Cornwall. Her short fiction has been published in the London Magazine. She's been shortlisted for the V.S. Pritchett Prize and won the 2018 Rydale Book Festival Short Story Competition. She has an MA in history from the University of Manchester, where her research focused on the relationship between memory and landscape. She's an agent's assistant at Felicity Bryan Associates.
0: And now Aoife Inmin is going to read from her winning story, Grown Bodies. Thanks, Aoife.
2: In the month before they begin burning animals on the Gower farm, there is a party in the village hall. It's organised by the Young Farmers Club. There's a bar serving cans of Coke and 7-Up, and the committee repurposed the silver Christmas streamers they used during the infant nativity as decorations for the window. By 7, the hall is busy. The Gower's eldest boy, Liam, hangs around the entranceway with James Trewin and Moira Lewis slouching against the doorframe and blocking it just enough that people have to step over his feet. He kicks his younger brother Dylan in the shin as he passes and flicks a red plastic lighter with his thumb so that the flame dances on and off. Liam is taller than his peers, with pale, almost white hair shaved to the scalp. There is an inch-long scar on his earlobe where Moira once pierced it with a safety pin and slipped. The three of them laugh disparagingly at the younger children darting back and forth from the dance floor, faces red with exertion. And at half past eleven, they stalk off towards one of the old barns at the edge of the Gower's Land. They bought pills from Dom Evans, hidden in a plastic tampon applicator in Moira's bag. There does no one on the door of the village hall to search their things and the pretense feels childish now. They climb up onto the roof to take them. It's a full moon and the corrugated iron ripples like the surface of a lake. From a distance, they can hear the music blaring in the hall, cotton-eyed Joe. The sky is vast and black. Liam opens his mouth and imagines it pouring inside him like tar. A torch beam swings across the hill, and at some point they climb down and head back to their respective houses, running blindly up the empty country roads, their pupils wide. There is talk of what is coming long before it arrives, and the village takes precautions. The Lewises leave Buckets of bleach solution at the farm gate and the sound of hose pipes loosing down cattle grids seems to last all day. all Day comes and goes, the livestock shows are cancelled, so the celebration feels smaller than usual without the Truins Barn set out with rows of pens for all the rams and heifers. Still the flat parade in the centre of the village goes ahead and the rain holds off. A man from the council comes on a weekend and helps to close the footpaths that lead through the fields until the valley is bisected in every direction by yellow tape. This works for a while. Spring settles in as normal. Overnight, there are swallows nesting on the side of the schoolhouse and snowdrops appear on the verge by the newer housing estate at the base of the village. The 10 o'clock news shows videos of fires on the Devon border. The camera cuts away to shots of empty yards and redundant milking equipment. Everybody in the village watches, switching channels when the news returns to the presenters in the studio to catch the last few minutes of a programme about trains or weight loss on one of the satellite channels. It doesn't mean anything till it's here, just a lot of words to scare us, Liam's mother Roxanne tells her sons, frying sausages on two flat griddle pans. Fat from the meat spits up onto her jumper, her forearms, her hair, and she rubs it in with damp fingers. Liam shrugs his shoulders. You can't stir shit without a stick language your brother's sat right there. Roxanne looks over at her husband Martin slumped by the window overlooking the field. He massages the corner of his jaw with two fingers frowning. He has been grinding his teeth in his sleep again. She calls his name and he flicks her eyes towards their eldest son. He sighs. Whatever you're doing Liam stop it. Right that'll be nothing then I'll stop doing nothing. Martin presses his wrists into the arms of his chair exhales and leaves the room. Roxanne hears the latch on the front door click too and she jostles the sausages in the pan so that their skin split juices hissing against the hot oil
1: Thank you so much Eva, for reading that that was a fantastic reading I have so many questions about this piece could you tell us a little about the writing process of um, Earthgrown Bodies is it about something that you experienced this is foot and mouth disease right this is what it's about because I, I i remember i remember it quite vividly the foot and mouth outbreak because it's that around 2001 i think it was yeah
2: in 2001 i would have been too young to remember really what was going on but i was i grew up in a lot of villages surrounded by dairy farms and then beef farms i remember being very young and listening to probably not that long after um, everything with foot and mouth had kind of quietened down in the public eye I um, listening to the Michael Moore Pergo book Out of the Ashes I don't know if anyone has read that, <laughs> but it's a it's a really lovely children's book well lovely is probably the wrong word but um, it's a story about a young girl on a farm who um, experiences foot and mouth um, disease and, and what that does to her family and how it kind of the loss, um, but also kind of this ripping apart of a community. And I remember being very affected by that as a child and having it on um, like a tape recorder um, and lying on the floor of my bed and listening to that. And it was one of those books that really sat with me um, as a child. And I think that was kind of playing in my mind as I was writing this. I've always written about um, small communities and, and I'm interested in capturing kind of community and and loss and and a, how do you tell the story of of not just one person but a place.
1: You're writing from lots of people's perspectives. Did you find that quite difficult?
2: I didn't. Um I it's what I like to do in my writing. I've always wanted to explore how you tell the story of kind of how I said like a community. Um, and to bring in lots of different perspectives, and how do you balance them and tell a wider story um, while also letting your reader into the views of, of a family or an individual? And I think I was very influenced by um, writers like John McGregor and Reservoir mm. 13.
1: Um, I mentioned that one, yeah. Mm.
2: Yeah, which is one of my favourite books, but I think um, what he does with perspective there is so interesting because every single detail is. It's fascinating, but you read it as this part of this broader piece, which is actually a kind of a song of a of a people <laughs> and and how they experience loss. It's
0: interesting you bring up John McGregor. I read one of his short stories yesterday. Um, but he he is very good at picking the perfect detail to show how a character is thinking and how they're moving in a space. And you're very good at that too. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could sort of describe I mean, is it, is it does it become naturally, or are you kind of um, designing which details to place?
2: It usually comes from I free write a lot, Um so this was a lot longer than it is currently. I think it was about fifteen thousand words, um, and then I cut it down. Currently yeah, four or
0: five thousand words.
2: Yeah, so it's yeah, lost okay. like <laughs> two <laughs> two thirds of it. But um, but yeah, so it's I. I don't consciously go into it knowing what I want to pick and and how I'm and who I'm going to stay with. So there were characters in it before who are not in it because they didn't feel relevant. Um, so I settled on these three families. I think Max Porter has spoken about this before, but like three is quite a nice like balance to get. Um, so you've got these three families, but also kind of yeah three perspectives and, um, and then there are little scenes that are brought in as well of other characters. It's less of a conscious thing as I'm writing and it's much more of an editing process of picking out what what works and what doesn't. So fascinating. Edit, that
0: leads us to a questioning about your editing process quite neatly. and it sounds like perhaps it is long, longer than the writing process.
2: yeah it's a very extensive process um yeah so I I think I wrote this the first draft of this pretty quickly um I think maybe it took me a month or something like that um and then I spent uh all in all I think I was editing for a year um which is absurdly long but i do have a full-time job as well so i think it's it's a bit of like time and yeah um and just when i have the free time to do it but um i edit and um have other people read um and get feedback as i go because sometimes you can't see what you're doing otherwise but yeah it's it's a really extensive and and the more time you take away from something and then come back to it i think you see things in it that are a week that you didn't see before and, and things you love new things that kind of jump out at you.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about your editing process? What does it involve? Is it simply just reading through and going, I like this, I don't like this, or is it something more?
2: It's a lot to do with um, rhythm and sound. Um, So I read everything aloud um, and I, I mainly edit that way. I'm maybe to my detriment obsessed with how words sound and and how a story is read aloud i'm really interested in language and and the rhythm of how we speak, but also how we tell stories. Um, So I think my editing is very detailed. I can spend a very long time fussing over one word and trying to find something that fits the metre of the sentence better. So it feels a little bit like editing poetry in the sense that I'm going sentence by sentence. Yeah, I'm just fascinated by rhythm and musicality and and how we audibly tell stories and, and how that feeds into uh, writing about place because places and communities have a rhythm and a and a way of talking to each other which is just so fascinating to me and 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 it's interesting to try and capture that in written language
0: I think that comes across very well especially in the um the scene that you just read with the between the um, liam and his dad and he snaps at him and it's like what am I doing nothing it feels very true. And I can kind of visualize the teenage son being aggravated by his father in those few words. And so I think your kind of detailed whittling, editing, is quite effective. A lot of um, a lot of the story is action after action after action, and I guess you're kind of going with the traditional show don't tell. Um, but occasionally you break into dialogue. And how do you decide when to expand a scene and when to just shift onto the next action?
2: I'm not sure I ever make a conscious decision about it um, and whether it's just where I feel like it needs um, dialogue. I spend a lot of time editing dialogue (laughs) because, I think because of that um, audible thing that I was talking about and, and speech, I think writing speech takes me a long time because I want to capture the way that people speak and that often isn't how we write speech in stories and in books. And that's not to say that it doesn't work, but the way that I like to write it is is that muddled and uncomfortable and weird way that we do speak and communicate, which is never saying exactly what we mean and what we want to say. And it's never in the right order. And so often my dialogue takes a very long time to get to the point of things and people don't ask the questions that they want um, and they don't get the answers that they want. And so... I think when my writing breaks into dialogue, it's to vary up what we're seeing, but also to allow them to speak for themselves. But it's also for this this different auditory experience when you're listening to the story or you're reading it. Because for me, when I read, I kind of hear, whether it's my own work or somebody else's, I hear the rhythm of it in my head as I read. And so it's important for me that people reading my work get that experience as well of of a rhythm that changes when we break into dialogue and then when we go back to description
1: I had a question about the opening of the book it features these very young well not I guess they're like teenage uh uh, characters and I wondered if that's something you're interested in writing about is that sort of growing up in a teen in a rural setting life because that felt very very accurate to me (laughs) having grown up during that period being that age in a rural setting where there is nothing to do but drugs and alcohol that's it that's what yeah. you do um or get into fights or get into trouble that um is that something you're drawn is that something you're drawn to writing about
2: yeah i think so um i purely probably because um i spent yeah a, a large part of my growing up in cornwall um on the lizard Um, which is for anyone who doesn't know, like the the most southerly point in Cornwall, but there's like no bus service. There's no, there's no nothing. You have to get lifts everywhere. And now that I've moved away, I think I have an idealized version of that and and how lovely that was. And and there was brilliant and amazing things about having that much freedom. We were given so much space just to like roam around and do whatever we wanted Um, and spending a lot of time on, on farms and, and friends farms which were nearby but I think it's important for me when I think about it to also reflect back that there were things that were that you felt restless and and that restlessness I think is what I'm interested in and and it's something that the writers that I love reading also explore is kind of how do you do like teenage angst but in a way that's not kind of cliche and (laughs) And just um, city focused because that's my experience. Yeah, you you definitely capture
0: the sort of uh, grubbiness of teenage boredom Mm. and that sort of um, kids on the brink of desperation and illegal behavior at all times (laughs) because there's nothing else to do. And (laughs) I think as we're talking, I realized that I am probably about two years older than your teenagers in the story in that time, (laughs) which is, yeah, maybe why um, it felt so familiar and true to me. The BLB podcast is brought to you by Bricklane Lane Bookshop. As a thank you for listening to us prattle on about short stories, they're offering all listeners a 10% discount. Just use the code BLBPOD, that's B-L-B-P-O-D, at the checkout for 10% off any purchase from BrickLaneBookshop.org. I, I wanted to ask you about the POV and the sort of um we've talked about how you use detail and minutiae of everyday life to craft character, but you also kind of pan way out, almost like you're kind of looking at the landscape from a from a drone. Um you have a very sort of wide perspective. Um was that something you were conscious of as you were writing?
2: Um no, the, it was um it was a conscious decision. Um and I think part influenced by Reservoir 13 and, and what that um book does but also by uh by the fact that I wanted to tell a large story in a small amount of words um and I knew that in order to tell the story of a community and what it's facing you have to zoom out to see the place and 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 the rhythm of that place and and what is happening to it, and then zoom in on on these daily, minute things that are happening to individuals. Peter mentioned earlier
0: that it it sort of rang true reading it kind of last year after the pandemic, because I think one of the things you do well is kind of hone in on the sort of everydayness of tragedy. You know, when there's there's cows burning in a pile or there's the blisters discovered on the hooves, the characters go inside for a cup of tea. And I wonder if your own experience of the pandemic kind of influenced your sort of understanding of the mundanity of um, bad situations.
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure if it's even completely settled in yet. Um, I think we're probably all going to need like a couple of years to reflect back on, on what it means to live through Something that is um, both a global tragedy and, and also your everyday life. Um, but yeah, I think I had finished writing this by the time the pandemic had started. So my editing process was mostly through the pandemic, which brought up its own interesting um, things. It had my story had a completely different first line, um, and I submitted it to basically every single <laughs> competition, the magazine going. Um, and wasn't getting anywhere with it and the brick lane prize was the first one i submitted it to with a new first sentence um mm-hmm. and i don't know if, <laughs> you never know if it made a difference but um it used to start with the line oh my gosh what was it uh the the in the months before the infection was the, something it had the word infection in it anyway mm-hmm. and i do think that was a kind of big turnoff for a lot of people who were reading it through the pandemic um Sorry, I've taken this on a bit of a tangent, but I think it's interesting. No, for it is
1: interesting. Anyone it's really who, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So
2: I think, yeah, like, especially for anyone who's listening, who is writing, um, that sometimes <laughs> you may get a year into submitting and you need to change your first sentence. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, Um,
0: so... I mean, The current first sentence is, in the month before they begin burning animals on the Gower farm, there is a party in the village hall, which is, that is strong. Really
1: strong.
2: Um, yeah, so that sentence just used to be a paragraph later. Uh, and it just used to start with uh, with a line about, I think it's, it's a similar line, but uh, um, with the word infection in it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I think in answer to your question, the pandemic maybe more influenced my editing process and what I chose to leave in and take out rather than kind of what the story was focused on so much.
1: Well, I, I literally wrote uh, on the very first line. Speculative fiction opening. Okay. I genuinely thought this was like a speculative fiction, like dystopian piece. And then it just and then as you as you go on and you realize oh no this is about the foot and mouth disease outbreak and you don't never mention it which is brilliant I love the fact you never mention it you should never mention things like that because it <laughs> makes it so much more interesting but when the you know, the buckets of bleach solution I was like oh it's the foot and mouth outbreak I guess that is a dystopian thing isn't it <laughs> another dystopian thing that we lived through uh, in the UK but I thought that was so fascinating to yeah to not not name what it was but just name the consequences of it. And, and it just creates such an uh, uh, attention in the reader because they want to know what it is, which keeps you reading obviously, um, but it also, it, it it makes it so much worse. It makes, I mean, it was terrible, but it makes that the omnipresence of this like terrible thing so much worse because you just like, what, what is it? What is this nameless thing that the, that the author is trying to give us? So I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant.
2: People forget about it a little bit because it was so focused on, on farming communities. And I think maybe that's what I wanted to it's slightly serendipitous that it came about during a pandemic that I that I finished writing it. But um, but the people who were experiencing foot and mouth were experiencing a lot of what we went through—the loss of livelihood and and uh, grieving. But just it was so they were isolated because people elsewhere in the country didn't really have a have a sense of what was going Mm -hmm. on and and even for me growing up in a village um we our village wasn't affected by foot and mouth but but it was the fear of it was on the peripheries but I had no concept of that growing up because it wasn't directly affecting my family and and i think that's something that i wanted to kind of explore in the in the story
0: because foot and mouth is very very localized i think it's interesting to explore it in the wake of the pandemic because it's sort of awful news that was happening on some people's doorsteps but it didn't affect them and I guess the pandemic, it was the opposite in that it's happening on our doorsteps, but it was the first time in most of our lives when the news did actually affect us. And I suppose that's some of what you explore. I like the way in the story that you, you have the characters in their homes, but they're also watching the news on TV about what's happening in the farm next door. And that was uh, yeah, a good kind of um, literary device.
2: I think because we see the news as so separate to ourselves, probably pre-pandemic um, when I was writing, um, you see it as something happening to other people and not to yourself. Um, and so I was in a small way, although it's only a couple of sentences in the, in the story, I was interested in, um, how do people react to the news being about themselves? And there is this kind of strange thing that, that the celebrity of of appearing on the news is something that people are interested in when it's people they know or, 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 their local town or we're still interested in it even if it's something tragic um and so I kind of wanted to use that and 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 bring out the humor in that as well because there is something strangely humorous about the fact that we're we're still obsessed with being on the news even when it's something horrible or or seeing someone we know interviewed um and 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 what we decide to say about that and um yeah so it was a conscious thing to kind of Bring that in and play with that.
0: Um, yeah. I guess also when the story set, it was just at the beginning of kind of real life television. I think it's like the, when the first series of Big Brother came out. So there's this sort of these characters were maybe beginning to understand that, oh, you didn't have to do anything special to be on TV and be famous. And maybe it's like the, oh, yeah, I could, you know, mum, you just stopped me from being famous, like so and so. Yeah, it's, it's funny. <laughs> it's good. So you won the Britain Bookshop Short Story Prize
2: last year. Um, how did that feel? It was great, and um, I mean, I love the bookshop, but but yeah, I really it was really a, such a without sounding cheesy a confidence boost. I think most people who write feel like uh, because they're generally the only person reading their writing and giving themselves feedback on it, to have kind of validation by other people, and is so great to push you to to consider your work as valuable and and worth the time that you're putting into it so yeah I mean it was it was such a such a joy and an honor and and I was so grateful um yeah to have won it it was really great
0: yeah um, it's really good to hear I'm, I'm glad you made it. I was worried because I knew that you'd won, but you were like a little bit late to the to the event. And I was like, oh no, I hope she makes it. She it
2: was and such you... a diva move. My train yeah. was delayed and then all the tubes were delayed and I was running across London. I was like, it's okay because you won't have won. You can just slip in the back. Oh, no.
0: And you he... <laughs> did slip in the back. I was sort of like, I don't recognise her. She must be the one. It's okay. And I kind of calmed down. She came in just at the nick of the time and kind of like... Very coolly, just wandered on and read your stories. <laughs> if like you know, you do it all the
2: time. <laughs> all the stress was internal. Yeah.
0: <laughs> if now I'm going to embarrass you by reading out what the judges said about your work. First up is Elise Dillsworth. She said, "A well drawn and poignant observation of the effects of a catastrophe on a community and a good sense of place." Wendy Erskine said, this is a beautifully drawn story of power, complexity and nuance, a worthy winner. And finally, Kishani Widiyaratna Ratna said, I really admired the humanity and pathos of Ife Inman's story. A striking opening line intrigued me from the first page, and I was enthralled by the story of this small community throughout, an assured new voice. Uh, is it, what's it like to hear these people? I mean, I, I chose these judges. I think they're all wonderful. What's it like to have these three say such great things about your work
2: I mean it's just so nice (laughs) Um, yeah I mean I it it kind of it's like feels slightly unbelievable when every time I hear it um because I'm such such an admirer of all of them working in publishing myself I think um I've seen Kish's list at Fourth Estate and she publishes such brilliant books and i love wendy's writing and elise's authors that she represents are just incredible so to have that feedback feels just so lovely <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, Since winning the prize, where where are you in your writing life in your writing career?
2: Yeah, uh, what what a question. Um, (laughs) Still writing. That's 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 important. That's really important. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm still writing. I'm still working on stories. Just kind of balancing it all with day to day job life but yeah always always still writing and still working on projects
0: good to hear you're still writing um (laughs) and I I I hope that you're writing a short story collection but if going by the editing processes and timings of Earthgrown Bodies that means that we might have to wait about a decade (laughs) (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) I know no yeah I am I I am working towards a collection um yeah with uh the help of (laughs) The writing squad, who I haven't mentioned yet, but who are brilliant um, and was a huge help for me as a writer. And um, they're a writer development scheme based in the north of England who help uh, young writers with mentoring and um, and giving feedback on your writing. Um, and I would not be writing today without them. Um, I was I'd never written anything properly, really uh, submitted anything anywhere um, before I joined them. And. Um, and I've been so completely blown away by their support. I've been with them for maybe four, five years. Um, they give you the belief that, that your work is worthy of, of submitting to places and that you are a writer um, by taking you seriously from a really young age. Um, and it's completely free and, and Arts Council funded and they're just a brilliant, brilliant team. Um, and that's the so, writing yeah. squad. Yeah um yeah so they recruit every two years i believe um Mm, that's uh, a good
0: tip for any young writer
2: yeah 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 they're brilliant and um yeah i have been working with francesca haig um who's an author um um but also helps mentor me um and yeah so i'm hopefully working towards a collection but like you say it might be quite a while <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's okay the best ones take a really long time <laughs> if i wanted to ask you about um how your work affects your writing your work as a you work for Felicity Bryan as an agent's assistant. Does that mean you're doing a lot of reading and editing at work? And does that feed into your writing process?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of the first part of your question. It, yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of reading and editing um, basically every day <laughs> um, alongside lots of admin and other stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean I love it. And I would say it less feeds into my writing as kind of vice versa. Um I think my experience of writing and submitting means that I can bring that to the work that I do at the agency. And and I think I feel very acutely when you have to turn people down. Because quite often it's not because your writing's not good. It's it's just because it's not the right fit for what we represent. Mm. Or, you know, there's a million reasons why your work might not be right for a prize or a competition or, or an agency. And 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 so I think I, I feel maybe very deeply when I'm having to respond to people um about their work. Um, but I think I yeah, I hope that I can bring the editorial stuff that I do with my own writing um and those skills I'm kind of building through that to my work um, at FBA.
1: Aoife, it has been fantastic talking to you. Really, 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 really interesting. Uh, I love the piece and I really hope to read more. Can we read more anywhere? Is there any more pieces published on the internet or in books? Or um,
2: not that. I there's stuff in anthologies but um uh, I'm not sure where they are available <laughs> <is a> terrible <laughs> promo for my
0: own writing but yeah <laughs> uh, uh, I'm just gonna have a look at your. so did the London magazine you published oh yes
2: so, you see it's you're better than me on. there is yeah there's a piece in the London magazine um it's not online but it is on the physical
1: Thanks. and great. you're
0: also shortlisted
1: for the bh pritchett prize did they, did
0: they
2: oh wow anything? no that one's not published i don't think anywhere um That's
1: yeah there's two great prizes they're really 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 good prizes
2: yeah super good so we're yeah. gonna
0: have to be patient
1: so. <laughs> wait for the next More one
0: inman classics in our yeah.
1: screens and in our hands Fantastic. yeah anyway it was really really nice to talk to you thank you for coming on the podcast today
0: thank you for having me it's been a pleasure thank you
1: This podcast was brought to you by Brick Lane Bookshop. Music was by Andrew Everett and it was produced and edited by Kate Ellis and Peter J. Coles. Find us at bricklanebookshop.org or wherever you find podcasts.